podcast was recorded on July 20th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we have a very, very special guest today, someone that uh, I've wanted to bring on the podcast for a while. Uh, He is the Chief Behavioral Officer at Brinker Capital. His name is Daniel Crosby. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, our guests, you know, are really going to enjoy this, I think. Um, You know, that's one of my, my biggest things about finance is we all study fundamentals, you come out of school, you think fundamentals rule the world. Then you learn there's technicals behind it, money flows, you know, charts. They really drive things. But the one big, most powerful beast out there, I think, is sentiment. And so that can be affect the market in a positive way, it can affect it in a negative way. And that's really what I want to bring is, is your experience there uh, as a psychologist and, uh, you know, academically trained. Uh, we'll get into that. But before I do that, briefly, let's give a quick macro update, Sam. A lot of things happened last week. Um, when it comes on the economic front, maybe we can just do a quick recap and then jump right into to speaking with Daniel today. All right, this sounds good. So for the economic roundup coming through last week, and you mentioned sentiment earlier, Sherman, so this is topical here with the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Indicator having been released last Friday. Uh, that was down. Um, that was below expectations. The expectations was calling it for a 79 print. It came out with a 73 handle. Uh, for the print. So much lower than expectations, but also a dip down from what it was previous uh, period. On that point too, Sam, it's amazing because a lot of times, you know, I say it a lot too, that sentiment tends to be a lagging indicator, lagging to the stock market. And the stock market's had a very good run over these last couple of months too. So I I think there's something uh, deeper in there. Maybe we'll talk to Daniel about that in a second, but definitely something deeper in that reading where sentiment came down when you had a very roaring stock market. And obviously, I think that's highly connected to the employment situation and likely the pandemic. But uh, anyway, uh, let's move on. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So seeing this, uh, I guess you can call it a reversal of what it was previous month. I think one thing that uh, we have to be cognizant of is we also have the conference board consumer confidence indicator coming out next week. And if you remember the previous period, that was at a uh, that had a pretty big snapback from previous lows, and that was largely on the back of positive responses from the individuals in Florida and Texas, uh, who kind of led the the bounce back in that. So we'll see what happens in in July, as we know that there's been a a surge in the number of new cases in those two states in particular. So we'll see what happens there, um, but definitely a potential driver of some of the weakness there over. Uh, in contrast to the to the market. Um, moving on to the jobs front with initial jobless claims uh, coming in a little bit as it has been doing so over the past few weeks, but still at a very high number with 1.3 million individuals uh, filing for initial jobless claims, um, just under a million in the PUA, the pandemic employment assistance that's uh, that was the, the new program to help individuals that uh, perhaps weren't filing W-2s or otherwise ineligible uh, for unemployment uh, under the, the traditional construct. But that uh, continues to climb on the pool front, but decline in the initial jobless claims. For the continuing front, um, with continuing claims, we have 17.3 million individuals continuing to claim um, the unemployment insurance through the state. Uh, if you combine that uh, with what's going on in PUA, we have just over 32 million individuals claiming some form of unemployment insurance. So a very, very high number in there uh, still that's really elevated and could 
uh, shape some of the sentiment going forward. As, as yeah, well. I just want to point out again and keep reminding folks, you put those two numbers together, you know, at 32 million, that puts us at an unemployment rate north of 20% in this country today. So uh, perhaps that is some of the reason that I was speculating that that um, that sentiment data came down uh, when people talk about their current situation is that, and also the expectations got kind of double dip back to that May low that we saw as well, or sorry, the April low. And so if you look at those two things, uh, perhaps people are thinking about the expiration of some of these benefits that are set to expire in about two weeks time if Congress doesn't act. Yeah, so that's definitely uh, something that people are going to be watchful for is just whether or not additional stimulus or a continuation of existing stimulus and support programs will will make its way through the House and uh, through the president's desk by by next month. I think that's certainly going to be important in terms of of how things progress going forward. Um, and then I'm going to end off with the economic roundup with retail sales, which saw a, a decent increase um, on a month over month basis for July. I should actually de decent probably an understatement. It did very well. Uh, so seven and a half percent uh, increase over the previous month of June, which in and of itself was a record high of plus 18%. So uh, two back-to-back -back high levels, and they were both um, led by, both months were led by uh, increases in clothing, uh, clothing and clothing accessory store, retail store. So month over month, clothing saw an increase of 105%. Previous month, it was up almost 200% uh, on a month over month basis. So these increases on the month over month basis brings the year over year into positive territory at plus 1.1%. Which is uh, so amazing, right? I think if you if you just focused on retail sales, and you know, obviously this is a, a retail-driven economy, and the consumer drives a lot, uh, this could be the shortest-lived recession ever. Really, uh, you know, when you look at it, because uh, we we had the official announcement of the NBR in February uh, that that's when the recession started. If you look at this data set, and you look at incomes, you look at retail sales. All of a sudden, it looks like you know we're out of the woods. So uh, I think uh, that's been highly predicated on these um, unprecedented programs, the amount of stimulus that we put in people's pockets, uh, both through direct stimulus as well as these incremental unemployment benefits, not just through the PULA program as we keep calling it, but also that incremental $600 a week uh, from the federal um, federal government giving additional unemployment insurance. So uh, I think it's uh, it's too early to call ourselves out of the woods yet, but I do think that um, there is some uh, there's some reasons uh, that we've seen to. Be celebratory about. However, um, a lot of these people, as I said, north of 20% unemployed at this stage. So uh, with that, let's talk about the psychology of this. So Daniel, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for letting us talk about a little macro to start off. But for those that don't know you, uh, you're a well-published author um, out there. You got a New York Times bestseller that you uh, uh, you co-authored um, uh, what's called Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management. Uh, also very popular book. So you're not that great. Um, that's uh, I, I don't know if that was a target at me and Sam uh, when you're thinking of that title. Um, but also, you know, one one that I I've read and you know I'm a big behavioral guy. I think that it's a very important characteristic is the behavioral investor as well. So um, thanks for you know putting those out there for our listeners out there. I highly recommend those um, those books as well. But Daniel, uh, maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, your educational experience. You know what led you down the path uh, to get a PhD in psychology. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm a little bit of a, a, a strange bird in the world of finance. My my PhD is actually in clinical psychology. So I went into the world of psychology to work with women with eating disorders, which is you know the the weirdest the weirdest way to end up on Wall Street that you'd ever find. But you know, I had a real a real passion for that work. Did it for a number of years, but but found myself frankly just starting to to burn out. Like the work was is extremely important, and I'm I'm so grateful that there are there are therapists and people who do uh, that important clinical work. Uh, I didn't really have the constitution for it candidly, and was just kind of very heavy for me. And so I knew that I wanted to think deeply about human behavior. I knew I wanted to be involved uh, in a, in a meaningful way in in thinking about why people did the things that they did. Uh, but clinical work was was getting to me. And so I went to my father, who is uh, uh, himself a financial professional, financial advisor. And I'm like uh, three years into my doctoral program at this time, so like 25 years old. And I, you know, I say to him, you know, what what business applications of psychology exist? And he says, well, my work is full of psychology. And I had, you know, at that point in my life, never imagined that to be the case. I had always sort of thought about 
my dad's work in a very two-dimensional way as being this kind of analytical numbers guy. And so it's at that point that I began to look in earnest into sort of business non-clinical applications of psychology. And my first job out of college, the first job out of uh, when I got my PhD was actually pre-employment vetting of bankers. So before they would hire a bank executive, they would bring me in to do like an IQ test, personality tests, a long personal interview and, and try and determine if the person in question had the, had the smarts and the skills and the personality needed to excel at their job. And it's within the bank that I became acquainted with behavioral economics. So, you know, in my late 20s, I sort of discovered behavioral economics, which was having a moment and continues to have a moment, uh, but was having a moment with uh, with the Nobel Prize, having just been awarded uh, to Kahneman. And so it became sort of my life's mission to take uh, take these things out of the ivory tower and put them on the desks of uh, you know of advisors and investors everywhere and try and help them understand how you know these brilliant people who were publishing papers that no one was reading could how they could apply these constructs to their everyday lives. No, that's great. Um, it's funny you said that you didn't think there's a lot of um, uh, application in here, and you were talking about the eating disorder. Well. I think uh, some people would think the Fed's causing a lot of these eating disorders of jamming these securities down our throats or jamming risks down our throats too. Uh, but I, I think it's interesting you bring up Kahneman as well because I think what was that like? I think it was like 01 or 02 where Kahneman got the Nobel Prize. And you know it was one of those things where uh, economists or the field of economics really – uh, I, a lot of people say they want to have science envy and, you know, they had physics envy, I think is the phrase people use. Um, and they've really rejected they, for a long period of time. They really rejected this behavioral idea. And um, it's a very important part of decision making, because one of the first things you assume as an economist is rationality. Right. So the, you assume the idea that, you know, everyone's rational. You're gonna, you're a utility maximizer. Right. Um, and so um, I find it, and again, the segue is just perfect because um, I, I, we, re we discovered something that you created something called an irrationality index. Maybe you could talk about that and uh, uh, give our listeners a view into what, what does that mean, an irrationality index, and, and what are you trying to quantify? Yeah, so at the risk of at the risk of raining on the macro parade earlier, one of the things that I was frustrated <laughs> about, <laughs> one of the things that I was frustrated about in my research was that uh, asking people how they feel is effectively useless. Like people are really, really um, poor predictors of their own behavior. They're poor predictors and they're poor descriptors of their own behavior. Uh, and it's alarming when you really start to look into it, how little access people have into the reasons why they do the things that they do uh, and their ability to predict uh, you know, what they're going to do in a given situation. In fact, there's some interesting new research out that shows that your coworkers are a much better descriptor of your personality than you are, and that your coworkers are much better at predicting how you'll behave in a, in a given situation than, than you are. And so what I wanted to do with the irrationality index was to stop asking you know, consumers how they felt about things, to stop asking CEOs how they felt about things, and just look at the data. Right. Just just look at the data, just look at the data and, and try and combine those things, uh, those data points in a meaningful way uh, to try and put a number on how um, on how sort of irrationally exuberant or irrationally fearful we were we were at any at any given moment. So that is sort of predicated on a deep belief of mine, which is that we are garbage predictors of our own behavior and that a much better uh, a much better look into people's. Uh, psyche is to just look at what they're doing rather than what they're saying or what they're reporting. Well, well, that part's very interesting too. As we come up on an election cycle, and you know, people look at polls, and we, we've had some pollsters on here, and people that that focus on political science as a, as a hobby, and for a living, I should say. But what's interesting too is that you know, when when people get in groups and and herds, uh, they tend to have different responses as well. And there's this idea. I, I thought it was very interesting. Now, I, I don't ever want you to ask Sam about my behavioral traits um, because I, I may I may feel a little exposed there. But really, when you think about this too, um, it, what is the difference between people's 
perception of their own behavior versus how they actually behave. Is it the emotional side? Um, you know, as a clinical psychologist, is that what you see? Or is it really that people just, you know, they want to maintain status quo. It's a popularity thing. They want to have the perspective or, or the perception that other, others have the perception of them that they behave in a certain manner. What do you think that distills down to? So when you're talking about this, I think there's two primary things you want to keep in mind when you're thinking about people's misreporting of their own behavior. One is that they dramatically, dramatically uh, discount the impact of environment. So most of us, especially in Western culture, when you look in Western culture, we tend to think that, you know, Daniel in this place in time and Daniel at that place in time is, you know, a single static entity moving through the world in a relatively sort of static way, right? Even if you look at Eastern cultures, there's more this idea of, you know, like Daniel at church and Daniel at the beach and Daniel at the bank. And like these Daniels might be a little bit different and they might be more situationally determined. But at least in the U.S. and Western Europe, we tend to think of like personality as being kind of unchanging. So one of the things that we don't account for is the situational context we find ourselves in. So you might have a risk tolerance, say, to bring it back to markets that is a certain way. But when you find yourself in a, in a harrowing moment or a moment of great volatility, you underestimate the, the degree to which that scary news or your fears of the virus or whatever other thing are going to impact your behavior. So we really, really, uh, we really, really discount situational variables and we think we're more consistent than we are uh, is one thing. And then we just tend to misremember and misreport our positive versus negative behavior. Like all of us, you know, it's a form of overconfidence. All of us have this vested interest in thinking of ourselves as, you know, faster, better, stronger, smarter, better looking, more virtuous uh, than we actually are because it helps uh, buoy our self-esteem. It helps us get out of bed in the morning. You know, it helps us talk to that attractive person at the bar, whatever. Like it helps us do all these things, uh, but it makes us really, really poor reporters of our own behavior. Uh, because we do everything from overestimate uh, our, uh, you know, overestimate our tendency to eat healthy, to overestimate our tendency to act rationally in markets, to, you know, overestimate our tendency to, to engage in safe sex practices, especially anything that has any kind of an emotional component, like all those three, three, three things do, we, we way, way uh, Make our, we make ourselves appear much more virtuous and much more uh, constant than we actually are. Yeah, I think we see that quite often, actually, uh, uh, Sherman and myself and others in the industry, where we're always regaled with stories of how you know, the person on the other end of the table has timed the market to absolute perfection, what seems to be every single time. You know, they sold at the right time, they bought at the right time. And, you know, I guess it just speaks to that behavioral bias that you're talking about or that that uh, that bias that we have around the idea of market timing and stock picking, where we just always think that uh, we're, we're good at it. And we just remember the most recent type of good trades that we actually did, but seemingly forget the all the bad ones that uh, preceded that. So there was a there was a study that I cited in the behavioral investor. I'm going to mess up the actual statistics, so I won't try and cite the actual percentages. But it was like half of people missed it by this much, half of you know a quarter of people missed it by this much. But the net net of it was that the uh, reported trading behavior versus actual trading behavior was indistinguishable from zero correlation. Like people had no memory of what they actually did. And they only remembered their best trades. They totally forgot their worst trades. They sort of legitimized everything that went wrong. You know, they everything that went wrong, they made situational. Everything that went right, they made personal, right? This is something called the fundamental attribution error. When I cut you off in traffic, it's because I haven't had my coffee yet. Like, I'm a good guy. I've just under-caffeinated and it's not really me. But when you cut me off in traffic, you're, you know, you're the worst. And so this is something that we do with, with our trading behavior and in our investing behavior, too, is when it goes our way, it's because we're Warren Buffett, you know, incarnate. And when it doesn't go our way, it's because the market was goofy or the Fed messed us over or whatever. 
Those themes are awesome today. Um, I always thought about it. There was a story I learned early in my career and, um, you know, about the Lake Wobegon where everybody was above average, right? Yeah. And so we know by definition, um, not everybody can be above average and you want to make it even worse, call it above median, right? Um, you know, when you ask people about their driving, it's like 85 plus percent probably think they're an above average driver. Um, but And the, the thing that Sam brought up, I always think about, we call it revisionist history. But isn't there something too innate about that? We have this, you know, this uh, as humans, don't we have this element, this defense mechanism that negative offense, we, we try to block them out. So I'm not shocked to hear this when you look at these studies that people remember their positive experience. It's in life. You, you know, you, you can't really have a good outlook on life if you're sitting around talking about all the negativity. So how does that play a part in decision making? Is that our innate um, the, the innate characteristics we have as humans, it goes back to these primal instincts or what is it about? It? Is it that we're all just, you know, um, we're just fabricators? How do you think about it? Yeah. So there's, there's two things kind of at play and there's, there's a little bit of uh, nuance we need to, to bring in here. So there's something called rosy retrospection, like where we look back on something that was not life-threatening, right? So like you you take, I have young children, so you take your kids to Disney World and it's a nightmare and everyone's screaming and it's hot. But then like at the end of the trip, you just go, oh, wasn't that great? Like, you know, <laughs> wasn't that fun? Like, didn't we have the best time? You just sort of remember selectively the best parts of that. But then on the other hand, we know we also have an outsized stickiness. There's sort of outsized stickiness when it comes to really dramatic negative events. And so there's been research to show, like again, I cited this in the Behavioral Investor, there's been research to show that your brain literally physically creates a space to hang on to the most negative things that happen to you to make sure that you never endure those things again. Because if you look evolutionarily, the reason why we're two and a half times as upset about a loss as we are happy about a gain, we know from behavioral science, right? The reason is because the consequence historically of a bad day was, was much more dramatic than the upside consequence of a good day. Like, right, if you get caught by a wild animal, you only get to make that mistake once. And so if you have a close call, you hang on to that forever and you guard against that and you fear against that forever. So on the one hand, we have sort of a, a tendency to, to erase small scale missteps and negativity, but then hang on with all of our, you know, all of, to white knuckle hang on to the worst things that have ever happened to us. So people who have been, been investing for a while Every single one of them have a, a little file drawer in their head that says, you know, 2008, 2009 or, you know, uh, tech bubble or whatever the case may be, whatever they lived through. And then when we have a moment of volatility like we've had in the past few months, those file drawers get opened and your, your mind and your body effectively say, well, don't let that happen again. And that's where we see some of the capitulation behavior uh, that we've seen in recent months because we have such a dramatically outsized memory for, for really emotion-inducing negative events. Well, you it's, mentioned that too. There was a paper that I, I read early on too in my career talking about myopic risk aversion. And that, you know, it, it exactly the studies you're talking about where the same size loss, you know, has two and a half times to three times the impact of that similar gain. And then there was you no know, compounding. It makes it even worse. But as your role as a chief behavioralist officer, right, or the chief behavior officer, what does that mean? Like, how, how are you trying to help your coworkers, your employees and their clients? What, what do you what is your role in that capacity? So it's a, it's really a three-part role. We've divided it into three T's called training, tools, and technology. And so the training is there's an educational element to this. Uh, the tools and the technology, though, are candidly where I'm uh, having a little bit more fun uh, because this is like the least popular idea uh, in, in finance. But the truth is we know from the behavioral research that education just doesn't do much. Like if you look at, you know, my, my favorite example of this is that if you look at the U.S., um, you know, we started labeling nutrition data, very fulsome nutrition data starting in the early 90s. And since that time, the, you know, the American eater is twice as, twice as overweight and three times as morbidly obese, right? We have perfect information about what we're putting in our body, and yet we don't make good decisions 
because typically information or education is not what's lacking. I think many, many investors know the, the fundaments of how to go to market, right? Like you don't panic sell, you buy and hold, you know, you do these, you do these kind of basic things, but the difference between knowing that and doing that is so dramatic that what we're trying to do is come up with tools and technology that will live in, you know, live on people's phones, live on an advisor's desk and help them in a, in a moment of panic to make the right decision. So I think that's the future of behavioral finance is what we call just-in-time advice because there's a place for education, right? Like education has a place, but it's necessary, but not sufficient because usually education is not the missing piece. Uh, it's that it's that just-in-time advice in a moment of panic to say, you probably shouldn't do that, and here's why. Well, that's what we always talk about is that there's uh, no substitute for experience. And you, we're always trying to, you know, when we train our younger uh, analysts and, and folks on the trading desk and, the, and the, in their analytical roles is that they're, you know, no matter how much you've learned, you have to live through some of that. So how do you help people when they didn't see that? Because I, we see this all the time, especially on the quantitative side where, you know, especially as a young person in the field, um, what you see is that you're like, oh, well, the 20% drawdown, no big deal, happened over a week, whatever, look at it, came back. And some people may think that about 2020's experience too, that no big deal, stock market down 35%, it just bounces back in the next couple of months. But there's something to be said about living that experience, watching the market every day, watching your statement go down, watching the, the value of your nest egg go down. So how, how do you substitute that experience? You know, Because you said education is not enough. Right. It's it's a tool. It, we all understand it. But how, how do you get people to really uh, not panic and not um, not change the decision making or change the rules of what they're trying to do over the course of that um, you know, directional volatility? Yeah. So, first of all, I would say I, I don't know that there's any substitute for experience because, yes, like you said, when you're looking at a back test or when you're reading a financial history book, you're like, oh, here we go. Look, it dropped 40%. And that, uh, you know, that sort of rational reckoning of that 40% uh, in no way belies the pain that people who lived through that were experiencing. So I think what you have to do, though, is you have to make it as salient as possible, right? You have to make it as personal and as vivid as possible for people. And so what we're doing when we're when we're doing risk tolerance questionnaires and things like that is for instance, just using people's real numbers and real wealth and you know, talking about the goals that they would not meet if they had a, a drawdown of a certain size because you have to tie it back to life. I think that's one of the things that behavioral finance finds again and again is that we have over, we've become too theoretical about money. And we find that when we tie money back to the purposes that it serves, when we name those dollars, and try and make it as salient as possible, you really start to change people's behavior. So one of my favorite studies of all time was a study that was done on uh, low-income savers. So as people who were making minimum wage, having a tough time uh, contributing to a rainy day fund, and they tried all these you know, rewards and punishments, nothing's working. And then finally, what they did was they showed them a picture of their children for five seconds before they made a financial decision. And that simple act uh, improved their tendency to save by over 200% because it made it real for them. So I think the thing that we have to do, uh, you know, whether we're end investors or, or financial professionals, is to tie money back to the purposes that it serves. Because when we when we look at the market like a video game or we, we read a book in a totally theoretical way, uh, it does nothing to sort of speak to, to the real pain that we all experience in markets moment to moment. No, that's a good point, too. And as you as you think about it, too, I think what also people have a challenge with is they look at the dollars, right? So a 10% loss means a lot more when you have a million dollars versus when you have you know $10,000, right? It's still the same percentage loss, but 
people start to look at the dollars, I think, especially as that nest egg grows. And I, I, what you brought up there is something that I've seen a lot more in financial planning where they call it goals-based investing, right? It's not that you need to have dollars, but you want to save for the second house, the vacation, I mean, you want to send your kids to school. There's something that you're targeting to do that, and people respond better in that saving capacity. I don't know if it changes their behavior in markets um, as much, but definitely it's that propensity to save. And one thing that I always talk about when people come and ask us for advice and, you know, we do this stuff day in, day out. And I don't, you know, a lot of people I don't want to give direct advice to, but I always tell people the most important thing is to start. You got to save, you got to start. You don't have to be Warren Buffett. You just need to start and just start putting money away. And saving is almost more important than investing uh, when it comes down to it, because a lot of people want that quick short-term solution. So how are you guys helping your advisors and, and working with them to incorporate these types of ideas into their planning? So you, uh, I want to speak to a little bit to how goals-based investing does help people stick through markets. So there's there's research to suggest that it reduces people's likelihood of capitulating going to cash uh, by about 66%. So something as simple as, again, naming those dollars, it dramatically increases people's tendency to save. Uh, it impacts their ability, uh, their tendency to be charitable it greatly reduces their um, tendency to, to liquidate their accounts or to go to cash. And it's it's one of those things I, I, you know, I am blown away by how often simple solutions are overlooked because precisely because they're so simple. Like we think that something as thorny and dynamic and complicated as human beha behavior should need some complex solution. But just naming accounts and bucketing money has been shown to dramatically decrease uh, your, your tendency to go to cash and your dramatically improve your ability to save. So we're doing little things like that. We're doing little things like having our clients sign a pre-commitment uh, pre-commitment document to say, look, here's what we're bringing you and here's what we respect expect of you in return, because this is a two way street. Because most clients, very often clients think, well, I'm going to bring my money to, you know, advisor X over here and he or she's going to going to get me across the financial finish line by virtue of their financial acumen and wizardry. When in fact, all of the research shows that your behavior, that client's behavior is the best predictor of of whether or not they get there. So it's again, it's a little bit unsexy. It's not, you know, it's not machine learning. It's not AI, but uh, but it's 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 simple and effective. And unfortunately, sometimes people overlook it uh, precisely because it is those things. Yeah, and it seems like unsexy is the way to go in that route. But um, I wanted to bring it back to something that both you and Jeff had mentioned, Daniel, if I can. Um, you had mentioned or Sherman was talking about education and, and you were talking about experience. And I think a number of investors out there have both. And you know, they, they, they have the knowledge that, for instance, you're not supposed to buy high and sell low, but we do it anyway. So it's one of those things where I guess the question would be, how can someone bridge the gap between recognizing what they should be doing um, and then taking control and actually doing them? Because I think that innate bias to you know, to to you know to to buy low and and sell high is often overlooked. You know, when when emotions actually come into it, and it's just something that can be difficult to accomplish. So, how do you bridge that gap from knowing what to do, and then ignoring that own you know your own advice? So, let me speak to the experience piece for a minute because um, experience can do at least as much harm as good. You know, I mean, experience can certainly educate. Uh, if if approached appropriately, but experience can also teach the wrong lessons. And, and something that all of us are up against are the fact that, you know, our investing experience is some drop in the ocean of the lifetime of all investor experiences, but it comprises the entirety of how we think about markets. So you look at someone, you know, I started working, I started working in late 2007. And so, you know, I start making money, I start putting money away, the market crashes, you know, a couple years later, the market crashes again, right? And so uh, we know, uh, depending on your timeline, you could learn all the wrong lessons, right? You know, if you started investing six months ago, you think the market is a very volatile place to be much more volatile than history would suggest. 
And so the first thing we have to get right is we have to become market historians and know that our personal experience is only a fraction uh, of what uh, the, the potential possible experiences uh, that, we, uh, that we could have. You know, Nassim Taleb refers to this as the Lucretius problem. Lucretius was this person in, uh, in history who thought that the tallest mountain he had ever seen was the tallest mountain in the world. And a lot of us uh, are guilty of falling prey to this Lucretius problem and thinking that, you know, the kind of markets that we've seen are the kind of, only kind of markets we will ever see. And that's certainly not the case. But in terms of your larger question about how we, uh, how we combat this tendency to, to do the wrong thing at the wrong time, I think the key is to automate as much as possible. So to say a little bit more about automation, sort of the meta rule of behavioral finance is that if you can take it out of an investor's hands, you should. Like if you can automate a best practice, you should. Because a lot of times people study behavioral finance with an eye to becoming like these discretionary warriors. Like I'm gonna learn every behavioral bias and then through the force of will and intellect, I'm going to overcome them all. When a much more efficacious way of doing this is by just automating best practices, you know, automating saving every month, automating escalating that saving uh, as time goes by automating the process of becoming more conservative when markets become dear and automating the process of taking more risk when markets become uh you know become cheap by whatever your preferred measure is all of these things are vastly superior to you reading a bunch of books like the books that i've uh, written and then trying to become this sort of uh willpower warrior because the the research just suggests it doesn't happen very much yeah, well, I think what's what I pick up on that too is that you know we we are a victim of our own success and our own failures, but also the environment back again as you started early on. And so folks that you know have come in in, in different parts of cycles, you know, I, I see that in people I know that started in 03 behave a lot differently than those that came in in 01. Um, and you just see that. I see that in their nature of risk taking. And then you, what you also said was interesting was that we only know our own history. We only know our own path, our own experience. So what I also like to point out to people is that, well, of all these realizations or, or all these paths that could have materialized, only one did. So we looked at history and you know people say, well, the stock market did 7% per annum or did 6% real or you know these metrics, the heuristic. But also you have people that said, well, that that's stupid. The stock market makes 15% a year because I started investing in, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, right? And so, you know, there's only one path through history. I think it is important to have a guide, but so much is focused on people who got burned. You use as your experience, you started in 07. But what about the people who have success at timing the market? Let's say you went to cash in early 2008. What that also does, that creates a behavioral bias too, that when you see things are very dear, sometimes you miss out on other opportunities. I think a lot of times that's not focused on enough. Opportunity cost is a big thing. So success can beget more problems as well. Yeah, ab absolutely. So there's a, there's a fantastic book called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf that's all about sort of the biology and the physiology of trading and investing. And he, uh, Coates is the gentleman's name. He used to be a trader at Goldman Sachs, and he went on to become sort of a neuroscientist and study trading behavior. And, you know, what he found is that winning can beget losing, both in the animal kingdom and among traders. What happens is when you start winning, you know, overconfidence creeps in, testosterone uh, starts to build, you take bigger and bigger risks, you don't size your positions, then you get crushed. You know, and he found this in everything from traders to to rams that are battling for lady rams affections, right? So this is this is just something that happens. We can learn the the wrong lesson to the upside or to the downside, because I promise you, there's some Robin Hood traders who started you know buying absolute nonsense three months ago and are you know think that they have things figured out. So it can you can learn the wrong lessons in in either direction. And that's why I think becoming a, a market historian is so 
so important. Yeah, you realize that you don't just make 40 and 50 percent a month um, by buying Tesla and all those things right out there. Again, uh, no criticism on the stock. Don't don't know much about it. But um, point being is that, um, you know, again, it's a it's a you're a victim of your own experience, both positive and negative. Um, you uh, we were doing some research here and we found that you have something called the Behavioral Innovation Lab, and you you have this Behavioral Insight series that we were reading, and here and we saw this concept of behavioral, behavioral Innovation Lab. Can you tell our listeners about that, and what is your objective there? Yeah, so the Behavioral Innovations Lab was really uh, built at Bringer to, to bring out uh, the technology side of, of what I talked about with the training tools and technology. And the first innovation to come out of it is a, a project we've been calling Tulip, uh, it's a nod to the tulip bulb, uh, the tulip bulb mania of the 1600s, which is when you know a single tulip bulb went for the went for the price of a uh, small home uh, in Amsterdam, and then subsequently crashed to to next to nothing. And so, tulip is basically a tool for uh, through through a gamified approach, determining a an individual's approach to markets, uh, giving their advisor uh, a full rundown. Of, of their sort of behavioral profile with respect to approaching markets. And then the cool part is uh, giving that advisor real-time alerts as to when that client might be on the cusp of making a mistake. So they, they play the game, we monitor their behavior, and we find, you know, uh, when we find real-life scenarios that mimic the ones in the game that gave them trouble, uh, we're able to notify their advisor and say, hey, you may want to give Daniel a call because he was on the cusp of doing something dumb with his money. So that's uh, that's that's our that's our little pre-crime, our little minority report pre-crime take on trying to save people from themselves. That that's awesome. I love the uh, the minority report reference there. So I guess as we get close to wrapping up here, as I I knew I would just go off on the deep end and all these things because just the the behavioral side is so fascinating to me. Just people think it's just all financial or it's all economics and it's research, but um, there's so much psychology that's that's embedded here because the market is still an aggregation of a bunch of people, right? Yeah. So how, how do you, um, you know, thinking about, you know, giving advice to folks? And so, you know, your dad was in the business, you you started applying the the, the clinical psychology approach uh, to, to investing. What do you think are some of the biggest ways to help uh, help people identify and control their biases? I know every time I look up a bias, I get them confused where it's overconfidence, um, you know, all these like fallacy of composition. I want to use all these different things. I realize, well, it's not exactly the right bias, but there's so many biases out there. Well, how do you go about helping people identify them and trying to say, okay, look, you know, we're all just human beings. We have these problems. How do you make them better investors from that standpoint? So the first, the the two things that I think are powerful are uh, a personalized advisor and an automation. Uh, and so again, not not sexy, not as sexy as saying go learn all two hundred biases and then steal yourself against them. But we we find in the research that people who work with an advisor tend to vastly outperform those who don't. And candidly, it's not because the advisors know anything about finance, right? It's because the advisors keep those clients from making a handful of mistakes over an investment lifetime. It's not that they're stock picking wizards or asset allocation wizards. It's that they're good behavioral coaches. And so uh, across every country we've studied, we find this result holds. And it's because those advisors are that just in time a barrier between their clients and a poor decision. So we see this everywhere. This is why people hire personal trainers. This is why this is why people uh, hire coaches, because we don't see our behavior clearly. I've said it again and again on the show. Um, we need someone to help us. So hiring uh, hiring a professional to keep you out of your own way is a one very good piece of advice. And the other thing is, uh, you know, again, as I've talked about automating it. Um, for my for my second book, The Laws of Wealth, I I looked at over two hundred studies that compared people following simple rules to people using PhD level human discretion and found that uh, over well over 90% of the time following the simple rules beats, uh, uh, exceeds or matches the, uh, the using your head, you know, using your own discretion, trying to, trying to reason it out. So anything that you can automate, anything that you can just kind of lock in and forget about, 
uh, is very, very positive because what it does is it uses a natural human tendency to your benefit. You know, so often in behavioral finance, we're, we're focused on learning these biases so we can overcome them. But sometimes if we can lock in a good behavior, we can let things like our laziness and our status quo bias and our forgetfulness work in our favor. And that's always a much surer bet than you uh, being heroic at the moment, uh, uh, the opportune moment. So I think those are the sort of my two meta pieces of advice. Yeah, it's no wonder that uh, Jack Bogle was so popular with investors and made indexing popular because he had that success and that studies on his side, right? Just just making those decisions. So one thing you keep saying is this is unsexy. Um, but, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, you, you're going to make these sexy lists. I, I read last week that you got on the uh, from I think it was uh, was it uh, from U.S. News? It was the top 15 best finance books out there, uh, the law, your laws of wealth book. So uh, congratulations on that. I think you are making it sexy for investors out there. And so I think it's very important that sometimes it's it's the basics, you know, in football, they call it the blocking and tackling that wins championships. And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do here is not just equip people with the education, but also help uh, mentor them and guide them through and, um, you know, give them a bit higher probability of success. So I think you're doing a hell of a job, Daniel. So we appreciate that. Thank you. And before we uh, before we jump to Sam's favorite part of the show, maybe you could tell uh, our listeners out there where they can find more information from you. Obviously, we talked about a couple of the books. Where, where can they stay up on your writings, um, your musings out there, and how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, so real-time musings on the Brinker Capital blog, which is easily Googled. Um, I'm also very active, uh, for better or worse, on social media. So at Daniel Crosby on Twitter and uh, Daniel Crosby PhD on LinkedIn. Okay. Well, our listeners out there, make sure you add him to the follows. We want to see some uh, want to see some more follows under uh, Mr. Crosby's work. And as I said, um, for anyone who really wants to get deeper into markets and understand stuff, uh, your books are, I think, have offered great wisdom there. So thanks again for joining us. Before we let you leave, Sam has a favorite part of the show that he wants to introduce to you. All right. And that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. So, Mr. Crosby, what I'll be doing is offering a series of alternating prompts between Jeff Sherman and yourself, to which you will provide a top-of-mind response. So I'm going to begin the first one with uncertainty to Jeff Sherman. Uncertainty. Fact. Hope for Mr. Crosby. The whole world working to find a cure. Hmm. Very apropos. Mm-hmm. Fear. Manageable. To Mr. Crosby, um, so you mentioned there's something like 200 biases. Uh, what is the most harmful investor behavioral bias? Uh, overconfidence, because it tells you that you don't need to worry about the others. Okay. Uh, investor sentiment. The most powerful force of markets. Indeed. Mr. So I couldn't Crosby. get that into one word. <laughs> I've gone away from uh, the, the one word too, so, or even the term. So, Mr. Crosby, are there any positive investor behavior biases out there? Uh, any, almost any of them can be made positive. Just take the contrarian uh, point of view to your own behavioral bias. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm blowing up the one word thing, but yeah, like, <laughs> like I talked about before, you can take it and turn it on its head and make it work for you. I've always said that having someone around you who is always wrong is just as valuable as having someone who's always right <laughs> and more likely to find someone who's always wrong than always right. Um, and just never, but the, the key there, Daniel, never tell them that you're, <laughs> that, that you're, that there you are, you're contrarian. Uh. There's a number of them. There's a number of them. So let's see here. Back to Mr. Sherman with open discourse. I don't know what that is. I have to admit. Free talking, free conversations. Oh, open, okay. Uh, open discourse. Oh, okay. Um, valuable. We need more of it. And over to Mr. Crosby with loss aversion. Uh, evolutionary inevitability. Trend. <laughs> Is that for me? 
Yeah, trend. Your friend till the bend at the end. I had to use that saying. <laughs> All right, and then the last one here for uh, you, Daniel. Dodgers. Go Cardinals. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I, as long as you're against the Dodgers, it's okay. Uh, Cardinals is such a great organization, such a talented uh, club over the years. I'm a Giants fan, but, um, you know, uh, I do have a lot of respect for the Cardinals organization. The, so uh, I'll give you that one, Daniel. The Dodgers, the Dodgers have a, a, a good looking team this year, but uh, I, I live in Atlanta and I think the Braves, I think the Braves might be the most fun team in baseball this year, even though the, they're, the Braves are my second favorite. The Cardinals are my first, but the Braves and the Dodgers should be fun this year. Yeah. Poor Freeman, what he just went through, right? Yeah. Um, his, yeah. his heroin. So, um, yeah, but um, looking forward to baseball, starting with the uh, Giants Dodgers on Thursday. Uh, no one cares about a 60-game season, but we all need it. So I can't wait to watch it. It'll really feel like actual summertime. So Are they going to have uh, fans in the stand? I, I haven't even been. <laughs> they're cardboard fans, Sam. Cardboard I'll cutouts. Pictures. So there's cardboard cutouts that they somehow built people out of money to pay for in there. So, um, And I think <laughs> I, I read a good headline today, Dan, you may get a kick of it, is that you know, the really the thing that stinks about baseball starting is that none of us get to boo the Astros for what they did. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I saw that headline today. So anyway, Daniel, thanks again for this. Um, we're going to have to have you back because I want to pick your brain a lot more. Can't wait to see you at the next Brinker Client event. So thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, easy. My pleasure. Thanks all. Okay. Thanks. Thanks all. And uh, for those of you listening to uh, remember Sherman show pod can be uh, found on iTunes, Google play, SoundCloud, Spotify. We're still waiting for that Joe Rogan money. We haven't gotten there yet. We got the tweeter up. The tweeter has at Sherman show pod. You want to send us more caustic comments. You want to do them personal, send them at, at Sher Sherman show at double line.com. I've noticed the hate has been elevated lately. I think we're all getting a little antsy of working remotely. So again, uh, this was Daniel Crosby, um, again, uh, chief behavioralist uh, officer at Brinker Capital, well-published author, and a very, very interesting person to, uh, to dig more into. So thanks again, Daniel. Take care. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.